in an article entitled, How to Treat Your Water Right, which can be found in the Scoop Magazine by Farm Journal, product specialist Dr. Michael Kinty from Tennessee and Paul Kraut, senior product manager and agronomist from California, explain the importance of testing your spray water with Aqualens from the Agri-Intelligence team. In this episode, both Paul and Michael share how this simple test can improve your pesticide performance and improve your return on investment. Plus, Jody Lawrence joins us from Nashville with the latest planning progress report from the USDA. Stay tuned for this episode of FieldLink. Hey, joining us here today on the FieldLink podcast uh, is... In here in Tennessee is Dr. Michael Kenty. He's joining us. He's a product specialist. Uh, Michael, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. Glad to be here. And also joining us from the other side of the country is Paul Kraut. Paul's in California, and he is a senior product manager and agronomist in California. Paul, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. Great to be on again. Well, we're really excited to have you both on here. Both of you guys were just recently featured in an article from The Scoop by Farm Journal, and you were specifically talking about the importance of water quality as it relates to spray applications. And you highlighted uh, a product offered by the agri-intelligence team called Aqualens. Um, guys, tell us a little bit about Aqualens and really the importance of testing your water uh, prior to application. And Michael, what's, what's really important about doing that? To me, the, it's if you know what's in your water before you even go to the field, before you even make the decision of what pesticides you need for whatever crop, it's a simple test. It costs $65, which in the grand scheme of things breaks down to fractions of a cent per acre. With the, the Aqualand sample, the salesman can sit down with the customer and walk through every single herbicide, insecticide, or fungicide that they plan to use, identify the water quality traits that could impact it, and go ahead and plan to address it through the use of the appropriate water conditioner. Okay, and and I guess, uh, Paul, you know, testing water is different from time to time in different parts of the country. Uh, what are some highlights that you pick up in your part of the country? Well, obviously, testing water is is just like, you know, where we go about testing our soils, testing our tissues. Testing water is, is, is critical, and it's often something that, that people forget about. Um, you know, when we test water, and, and we recommend testing water every year, uh, in California, we have, we have numerous, you know, different water, water sources. We have surface water from, you know, from rivers, lakes, um, canals. We have groundwater. Um, where I live, we're 100% on groundwater. As we've had, as you have heard, uh, a drought for the last three years. Well, except for this year. Now we're in, you know, the opposite of a drought, I guess. Now we have too much water. But but that affects our aquifers and that affects our water quality. So I've been consistently over the last four years taking water samples from a well at, at one of our locations. And I've consistently watched that water quality go down and down and down, becoming, you know, hardness is increasing, pH is changing. And so if that's happening at one of our locations, I can guarantee that's happening at one of our clients or one of our customers' locations. And so understanding what you're dealing with in the water is going to be really, really critical um, when we're making recommendations for pesticide applications and the like. Yeah, not understanding exactly how that water 
uh, is made up can really change and impact the efficacy of of how you know some of these products that we're talking about can get quite expensive, whether it's an ad, or a herbicide or uh, an insecticide or even a fungicide. Um, you know, their price points all over the board, but understanding that water, uh, I guess, uh, structure is really, really important. So Paul talked about hardiness. Uh, Michael, tell us a little bit more about hardiness. How does that really impact, you know, the overall quality of, uh, you know, the performance of a product? The water hardiness is measuring mainly calcium and magnesium, which are cations. But if you have other cations present, it's included in total hardness. We separate out iron because it's a little more reactive with certain products like dicamba, but those, the, the, when hardness is above 200 parts per million, it can react with the pesticide and basically it's a chemical reaction, so you're rendering the pesticide non-functioning. Okay. And so if you got really hard water and you do not sequester and you spray glyphosate, you're basically spraying water because it's reacted and it's no longer a herbicide. It's just... It's kind of like neutralizing. It's, it's neutralized. It's, it's neutered. Okay, so it, the overall effectiveness of that product simply is not going to work. Right. Because, simply because your water is too hard. Water's too hard. Okay, so what are some other things? Iron, you referenced iron as well. Iron is important. It's, it's not as widespread. There are pockets, but in, in part of my territory, the Oklahoma, North Texas part, they tend to have high iron. Mm-hmm. If they use a, uh, a DMA salt version of dicamba, the iron will react with the dicamba. And once it reacts, it's a chemical reaction. It's no longer dicamba, the molecule that kills. It's the, the handle of whatever it comes becomes. And you may have 50% weed control, 40%. And I've been called on complaints. Look, we used a, a one and a half X rated dicamba and nothing died. You start digging in, they got high iron coming mm. out of the well. Right. And they didn't, they didn't even look at it or sequester it. So throwing more herbicide at it in this case certainly didn't overcome that simple. No, just spending more money. Yeah, spending a lot more money. Same to no results in that right. case. So, uh, uh, Paul, uh, also another key factor for you know testing water is pH. Uh, seems pretty straightforward, but how does pH really impact uh, the overall performance of some of these herbicides and insecticides? Well, similar to hard water, pH extremes can directly affect and break down um, chemistry, ag chem. It's called alkaline hydrolysis in the case of high pH. Um, and this is typically the case where we see, where we see um, pesticides that are sensitive to, you know, to higher pHs, they'll break down. And the, the thing is, and this is true with hard water as well, is, is that visually you can't tell the difference and you can't tell if that product is is being either tied up, sequestered, or is being broken down. You mix that in the tank, the tank looks the same. So that's a really, you know, really big challenge. And when we talk about, you know, you, you mentioned cost earlier. And, you know, when, when I think about an ag- agricultural, you know, spray application, the, the cost isn't just in the product. It's also in the diesel that's going into the tractor. It's the wage for the, the guy spraying it. Um, there's a whole host of other factors that, that, you know, increase, you know, that, that contribute to the, the overall cost of an application. So what we're, you know, what we're recommending to mitigate some of these, these challenges is it's basically, 
you know, insurance. We're 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 mitigating the the cost of a, a retreatment or a less than you know a less than um, acceptable uh, control rate with with those ag chems. So when we think about pH, I have a great little anecdote. Um, I used to farm um, wine grapes, and uh, and. And we use a lot of pre-emergent herbicides in in wine grapes. Uh, there is a pre-emergent herbicide out there. I won't name names. That is uh, that is uh, very sensitive to alkaline pH. It has a half-life of 15 minutes in the spray tank at a pH of nine. My water, and I didn't realize this at the time, but my water was pH of 8.4 to 8.5. So I had a spray driver. <laughs> We, we loaded this herbicide into a 500-gallon herbicide tank, and he went out and, and applied that covered, basically would cover 10 acres. And he did the application. I came back about, we had some rains, came back a couple months later, and I had terrible weed control on one side of the field and, and decent weed control on the other side. Well, what happened, I didn't realize it at the time until you know today, was that we put this herbicide in there, it was in the tank, and in the rows that he started, it was effective. But as it sat in the tank for longer and longer, it broke down. And so that by the time he got to the end of the field, two hours later, that product was had broken down enough that it was not effective as an herbicide anymore. And so I had to go back and retreat with a burn down herbicide application in order to do it. Well, that cost me, you know, basically double in tractor time per acre. Um, that was a that's a perfect example of if I had just buffered my water, brought the pH down to neutral to slightly acidic, the problem would have changed. And and buffers are you know relatively inexpensive. It was that would have been four dollars, three dollars an acre that that I would have that I would have you know spent to buffer the water. But instead, I spent sixty dollars an acre to reapply between tractor time and product. I mean that if that's not a perfect example of what not to do, I mean I've experienced it. That you know you 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 have to understand, um, you know your water chemistry. Well, that, that's a really great example, a real world example too. And I'm sure there's many more out there like that uh, where you know you just kind of get to go and you operate and then you kind of forget. Okay, yeah, throw the water and let's roll. I'm trying to be you know whether it be the weather or whatever, and and not taking that a little extra time to test that water. And, you know, specifically talking about pH, you know, Michael, we were talking about it. There's a lot of ways to test for pH. Uh, I mean, if you got a swimming pool, you're probably testing for pH every day. Right. Uh, so, so why is using a product like AquaLens better than the old pH strips? The, the pH strips, it's, it's hard to find them just pH. You got chlorine and other things. They're just a quick look, snapshot. They're, they're not very accurate. Um, we have actually... Today, we were looking in the lab because we had a complaint from one of our locations that believes the test strips were telling them something that it's not. Okay. And we've got one that I picked up at a pool store yesterday. We have a, another bottle of test strips that the lab has been using for a while just as a quick assay, and we're using our regular analytical pH meter. The two strips are different by over one and a half points. Wow. And the pH scale is logarithmic. And then our meter is measuring what we know they're supposed to do. And in in a case if somebody's using one of those test strips and says, Oh, this is is the pH of seven and they keep pouring stuff in, 
it may not move, or you can't tell did it move, and it gives you a, a false sense of security. A false reading, really. Yeah. And then it may lead you, well, I don't need to do it because it's not doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, if you were in a, like Paul's situation there, if you tested and it showed the test strips at 7.2 and he's really running about at 8.5, yeah. the half of, back half of his field is not right. <laughs> getting the effectiveness that it really needed. So the it doesn't take a long time for uh, Aqualens to be run. Okay. And it's, it's good for a year. I'm, I'm like Paul. I like it once a year, the beginning of the season before you actually start spraying because it takes into account the changes in the aquifer. Okay. And like he described it perfectly, it's going down, it's concentrating the problems. To the flip side, you're in an area that gets tremendous amount of rain, like they're getting, their aquifer water quality will change. Right. It should improve as they keep getting these flooding rains and benefit from that. Yeah, even at that rate, you say it should improve. And, and what the heck, another... 65 bucks is pretty good insurance cheap. Uh, to just test to see, make sure it hasn't changed in the wrong way, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, we were chatting about it. This might be one of the best insurance policies in agriculture. It's a hell of a return on investment. <laughs> I mean, when you think about what our budgets are for, for pesticides in, you know, depending on the crop, um, I know I'll tell you in strawberries here in California, we spend upwards of $4,000 an acre on ag camp. That is is you know water quality and and water treatment is is a, a cornerstone of of our programs because especially dealing with fresh market fruits and vegetables where you know quality of of the the finished good of the fruit the vegetable is is paramount. Um, we you know growers you know demand that that our ag chem applications are you know as close to a hundred percent. Um, efficacious as possible, and so we're doing you know everything that we can to ensure that that takes place. You know, in things like proper sprayer calibration, the proper products, you know, product mix, but water treatment is is that key key component in there. Yeah, that's a, definitely a great point, especially when we get into those higher value products. You know, having this water nailed down is critical, and I think it's also important to point out that. You know, just because you test maybe, you know, one source on, on your farm, you really need to test every source that you're going to be using. You can't take the old guesstimation here. Is that right, Michael? That is correct. We, that's a, a good lead in. We have a customer out in South Central Texas, um, not far from Very uh, uh, Best. He's got two wells a mile apart. And the difference in hardness is one of them is like 36. 600 parts per million, you drive a mile away, it's like 2,500. Okay. That's still a bad situation, but for spraying, it's much easier for him to address 2,500 parts per million than 3,700 parts per million. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and I think there's this illusion, too, uh, that folks that are using maybe a city water source, ah, they're good. We don't need to. It's city water. I'm all good, right? That's not always the case. Most of the city water that we've tested, at least in my market, is over pH of 7. Okay. A lot of times it's 7172. Um, they, they're adding stuff to make the water stay clean, a little bit of chlorine. Sure. But there's some things that are added that we found um, boron, for example. Okay. In our product, Coron Metro B. Mm -hmm. um, there's a water 
in a small town in Mississippi Delta, for whatever reason, there's something in there that we haven't been identified that reacts with the boron and it clabbers. You go right outside of town, go to any one of the farmer's wells, it's fine. All good, huh? Yeah. So every well, every source is different. That's why it's really important to have an Aqualens uh, test on all of them. Right. Guys, let's dive deep dive a little bit into carbonates and bicarbonates. You know, tell, tell me a little bit more about what are they, you hear about them, and how do they really impact producers? Um, they, they, there's certain herbicides that carbonates and bicarbonates react with more than others. Clethod, the, the clethodems or the dims, the grass herbicides, glyphosates are affected. Uh, it's fairly easy to control because carbonates and bicarbonate levels are tied to pH. And you drop the pH, the carbon, carbonates and bicarbonates convert to a gas. And, and an easy analogy to think about. Whether you drink a beer drinker or you like uh, Coca-Cola or Pepsi's carbonated drinks, you drink it, you drink a few drinks, all that carbonated beverages in your acidic stomach, you're going to burp. Okay. You're, you're burping off carbonates and bicarbonates. Gotcha. And what we're doing when we drop the pH in spray water is burping off the gas. Okay. So they will not react with the uh, herbicides. And we've got documentation from research that if you do not address it, like with a, a clethodum, mm-hmm. your grass control may be knocked 50%. Wow. So, again, cheap insurance. Cheap insurance, especially on clethodum, as well as, you know, glyphosate's another one, 240's other. Yeah. Lots of different products that it can certainly impact. Paul, sodium. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about sodium. You know, especially you're in the irrigation area, too, you know, irrigation across most of the country. But uh, how, how does sodium impact uh, the water quality in your world? Well, so, you know, when we talk about a water sample, there's there's a whole, you know, host of different kinds of information that we get from a water sample. Um, you know, spray water quality and, and ag chem interactions is, is one key. When we, when we think about sodium and other, you know, metals, but especially sodium, we're thinking about toxicities then. So we're, we're thinking about where if we, we're, we're we're adding sodium to the mix. Um, plants can get, you know, um, they can get burn. They can get margin burn. They can get, you know, those those phytotoxicity symptoms um, can affect water uptake, things of that nature. So it's more of a, a toxicity that we're worried about than than anything else. And typically, that's going to be, um, you know, for us an, an irrigation water quality uh, concern, especially when we're on, you know, in my world, we're on a whole bunch of, you know, drip irrigation, micro irrigation, where we're concentrating that water, a very small amount of water in a very small area. And as that evaporates, it leaves that sodium so it's really critical for us to you know to understand those constituents in the water and how they can you know affect us you know both from a irrigation standpoint and a and a spray water quality standpoint yeah definitely sodium can impact you know obviously irrigation but obviously spray water as well also another critical piece that's often text tested uh, utilizing the uh, aqua lens test and finally uh, total dissolved solids TDS uh, Michael well, h- how does TDS impact that, you know, and, and what is it? All it is is a measurement of the dissolved solids. Primary is looking for the clay particles in the water. Yep. And it's 
definitely a concern if you're pulling out of uh, standing water, like a retention pond, mm -hmm. out of a uh, canal ditch, uh, even out of a lake. Um, if, if that is your water source, you've got to look at TDS because if you have clay particles, it will bind with glyphosate. It'll bind with paraquat. There's some other pesticides it'll bind with. And, I mean, paraquat has no soil residual activity. Glyphosate has no, because as soon as it hits the soil, it's bound up. So if you have TD, um, solids in your water, you're basically just spraying nothing. And um, there, if somebody's well, all of a sudden glyphosate's not working, paraquat's not working, uh, we encourage them to get an irrigation specialist out there. Okay. Is, did something happen to the well, and is it being infused with solids from the bottom instead of pure water? And usually the telltale sign, the water goes from clear and is looking brackish or, or even a, a brownish color coming out instead of the normal clear water. Yeah, a lot of things could impact that, and that's what TDS is all about. Uh, Paul, what are some other, um, yeah, I guess, examples of poor water quality that you can draw from from some of your experience in California? Well, obviously the biggest one for us, you know, we, we discussed hard water hardness. And when we're on groundwater, that's usually the, the biggest the biggest piece of, you know, of concern. I, I, I've taken hundreds of samples across, you know, all over California and, and Arizona. And, and our groundwater is, I haven't found anything below 200 parts per million. So it is, it is guaranteed that, that wa hard water is, is, is an issue. Um, you know, however, you know, we do have surface water as well. We do get water from um, canals, reservoirs, and the like. And while that water isn't as hard because a lot of it's snow melt, so it's really, really pure, um, there, there are some other, other issues um, involved in it. A lot, of, a lot of times we'll have other, other than hardness, but other dissolved salts um, as well. So it, it's really incumbent to, and important to, to test the water at the end of the day um, as we're, you know, depending on what, what your source is. So, um, you know, our biggest one, we, we still, I mean, even, yes, we're still in California. We still do use glyphosate. Um, <laughs> they haven't banned that one yet. Um, but that, that's our biggest, you know, <laughs> that's our, you know, that's our, that's one of our, you know, our biggest key, you know, key herbicides that that we use and and in my opinion the most you know one of the most sensitive to to hard you know hard water um and so we we certainly have a number of solutions to address that and i think that's something that we might want to you know we, we, can, we can talk about is is that there's no one you know one true solution for all of these all of these um you know issues that we were discussing so you know depending on what what the what the water report is 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 telling us and then also depending on what pesticide we're we're applying is going to determine what water treatment solution you know we're going to bring to the mix is it ph okay we're going to be looking at buffers and and things of that nature is it hard water you know hard water well then we're going to look at sequestering agents and other things like that is it a combination so then we're going to, you know, we'll look at tools like that. So we'll look at like Quest or um, Hellfire or, um, or even Buffer PS, you know, just a simple buffer. So we have a, a, a lot of different solutions and, and that's really where Aqualens helps us kind of zero in on um, addressing and pairing up that specific solution with your water quality issue and the ag chem that you're applying. Yeah, you went right where I wanted to go. And that's a great point, Paul. 
you know, the neat thing about Aqualens is it really takes, quite frankly, a very complex subject and really breaks it down for the average person to best understand. Um, you know, the Aqualens, that is a great tool where it takes a lot of deep science, and, I, and I'm putting words probably uh, in your mouth, Michael. You and I chatted earlier. But it takes some really good science, and it breaks it down and keeps it simple for everybody. Yes. It, I mean, and one of the things when we were designing this, uh, the um, I got to work with the AI group and our chemists here at HPG because we wanted to make it real simple. And using no stoplight, red is bad. You need to fix that. Yellow is a concern. Okay. You need to start thinking about fixing that. Green's okay. All right. And, and the thing that, that Paul alluded to, we do not have one water conditioner that fits every scenario. If it did, it'd make inventory management a lot easier. But depending on the complexity of your spray mix, because it's rare. I, I, don't, I cannot think of a single product that goes out by itself anymore. Sure. It's normally three or four in row crops. And I, I have I don't have near the vegetable market as Paul does, but the record in my territory was 12 different products, a combination of insecticide, fungicides, wow. nutritional and bioscience products, and surfactants in one tank. So that's a very complex mix. Wow. And if we didn't know what the water was, we could have never put it together and sprayed it without issue. Yeah, and I think that's a great point when you get into Paul, you would you can definitely echo this. When you have that many products, it's going to change stuff anyhow. And now you throw water on top of that. If you don't have your water right, that's really going to throw things out of whack. Well, absolutely. And again, that's why we that's why we treat the water is to to keep all of those um, active ingredients in there kind of separated <laughs> and 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 playing their own part because, you know, you have you have, you know, hard water, you have high pH, then, you know, you can have some some chemical reactions taking place in those in that spray tank that, you know, might inactivate two or three of those active ingredients. And so we really want to make sure to keep everything kind of playing playing together and, and keep everything separated in that in that tank mix. And so that's again another reason why we're 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 treating the water. So Paul, let's jump back into Aqualens, the Aqualens report. How do you and your team, how do you utilize the report once, once walk us through the process of collecting uh, the, the Aqualens uh, samples and then, you know, where do they go and, and, and how is that report generated? Sure. So either myself, well, not really much anymore myself, but my staff, um, either salesmen or interns or, or, or whoever is, is going to be taking those samples, we, um, you know, we'll go out to the site uh, and we will, um, we'll, whether it be a well or a pump location or whatnot, wherever, if, if we're taking for, for spray water quality, we're going we're gonna to take the sample where they typically load, load their sprayers. We want to use that, you know, that that hose, you know, that hose or that 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 valve. Um, we'll we'll run it. We'll run the, the the irrigation for a couple of minutes to to clear out the line, so we're getting quote unquote fresh water. Um, and then we'll we'll take a sample, and we will send it to our lab. Um, and the lab will, you know, usually that takes, you know, we overnight it because water samples really need to be submitted to a lab as soon as possible. They, the chemistry can change if they, you know, you put it in a, in a, 
in a you know in a plastic jug and you you leave it in your truck for three days that water chemistry is going to change so we we recommend you know taking and and submitting those samples the same day um, usually next day air freight get it get it to the lab we'll get results within a couple of days usually within 48 hours and then the aqualens report is an is it's automated so the 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 lab talks to our you know our computer program that that builds out the aqualens report and i will get my aqualens report just as soon as the lab completes their analysis and so then we'll take that and I'll review it as you know, as agronomist. I'll I'll review that that sample report and discuss it with my salesman. Identify you know kind of what what our our customer or growers program is going to be, and then we'll uh, work together to identify the best solution for that situation. So it's it's actually could be a pretty pretty quick process from from start to finish. So you know, less than a week. Well, and I think that's a great point. It's it, it's a quick process, but. It's very timely, it's accurate, and to your comment at the very beginning, it could be the best insurance policy made uh, for a grower. Yep, absolutely. I mean, it, <laughs> we just we just think about how much money we spend, and and again, it's 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 we have insurance on our on our tractors, we have insurance, you know, we have insurance on our vehicles. Our, you know, ag chem applications and and the health of of the crops that we're growing, um, there there's a lot of value there, and 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 again, what we're doing is is ensuring that value that at the end of the day, the 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 applications that that the grower is going to make is going to you know have the efficacy that we're looking for and the result that we're looking for in order for them to you know produce and and market you know. A good crop. Michael, uh, we talked a little bit about AquaLens and, and some of the differentiating factors it offers. How is it different from just the average run-of-the-mill lab test that's out there? What are some of the big differences with AquaLens? Paul's hit on this, and we talked about it. It's very easy to read. Okay. I mean, um, my granddaughter's, my, not the youngest one, she's only four, but the one that's 10, when she was eight, I was looking at one, and she wanted to know what I was looking at. And without me telling her, she goes, Red, that's bad, right? Why? Yellow, do I need to worry about that? That's like a caution, so you don't need to worry about green. Sure. So it's, that, that's the whole simplicity of it. And the, um, I mean, some of them, I've seen some water samples from California labs that are very detailed. Uh, Waypoint, if you just get their standard water sample, there's a tremendous amount of information, and it overwhelms, and it overwhelms me because you sure. got to drill down. Okay, I need this, I need that. Well, I don't need those because I'm not worried about that, but I may need them later. And this just gets it very simple. But one of the things we hadn't—I've been thinking, sitting here thinking about—we Paul described how you capture it, right. you let it run, do a grab sample, send it off, get it back. You sit down with your customer. Okay, this is what we need. This water quest for this. We need interactive for this. Octus Max for this. But we hadn't talked about where you put that water conditioner. When you're filling up any spray system, rule of thumb, half a tank of water to okay. two-thirds of a tank, then treat your water. Fix your water with the appropriate water conditioner before you start adding the other stuff in the proper order. Because I've had some calls where they just got in a hurry 
and realized they hadn't put the water conditioner in first and what they were trying to prevent reacted and they had goo right. or whatever. So we, we built a mixing guide that is pretty comprehensive, step-by-step, step, and that we kind of do those in partnership with Aqualand Sample sure. handed to the grower. But it's, you know, when my granddaughter realized what it was with no explanation, Hell. it, I mean, that tells you everything. It's very simple. Yeah, and I, I love the idea of breaking a, a complex subject down to keeping it simple, then then popping off some pretty good recommendations that would align with some of that as well. Great. Uh, well, guys, uh, you know, I really want to thank you all for joining us here today on FieldLink as we become, I guess, more wise around water uh, in, in terms of aqualands and in helping our producers produce a more profitable crop, take advantage of the investment that they've made into their, their crop input system by utilizing aqualands. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Now we welcome Jody Lawrence to the FieldLink podcast. Jody, uh, welcome to FieldLink today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, now that we've turned the calendar to May and everybody is either in the field or anxious to get in the field, it's uh, always a very busy time of the year for agriculture. So glad to talk about the markets and what's going on. Absolutely. ton going on in the markets right now, obviously. And, and, and you know, planning progress. You touched on it. Uh, we're all over the board, but we're making good progress here the last couple, last week, really. Uh, let's, uh, the, the planning report just came out. Jody, where are we at? Uh, corn planted at 26%. That's up 12% from last week. And that really is a little bit higher than what we expected because it was so cool and so wet in a lot of the major Midwest states. And sorting through the report, when you look at Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, and Nebraska, they all made significant double-digit gains anywhere from 12 to 20% with Illinois up 22%. So they more than doubled the the uh, corn they got in the ground last week. So when you see the major states at or above, and right now we're at the uh, five-year average at 26%, but when you look at a few of these states, you don't see any glaring omissions from a, a really big, other than the, you know, the, the Dakotas, northern Minnesota, northern Michigan, where they're still under a lot of uh, snow cover, but I've talked to several of those growers, and they they don't get too concerned, and uh, if even if they get past May fifteenth, so they have a couple weeks. But when you look at the big ice states getting in their corn and beans are also uh, ahead of the five year average, ten percent of the U.S. bean crop got planted last week uh, to nineteen percent, eleven percent's the five year average, and the same state showed the improvement. Uh, Illinois up twenty four percent, Indiana up ten. Uh, let's see. This print's awfully small, and I'm getting old. Uh, let's see, Nebraska, and uh, Nebraska up 12% as well. So as the soils are starting to get warm and the forecasts get warm, I think uh, you got a lot of farmers who are uh, ready to uh, take full advantage, get some seed in the ground in those first couple days when the soil gets up to germination temperature with the abundance of moisture that we've had in most areas over the last several weeks. It uh, looks like this crop could get off to a pretty good start. Yeah, definitely some great progress through, uh, you know, the central corn belt. I know I listened to some growers from Illinois uh, earlier this morning and, you know, really 
the entire week was really set up great for them. Not a lot to deal with in terms of temperatures as well as moisture. So, uh, you know, once those planters get going, you can put a lot of acres in the ground. Speaking of weather, uh, let's talk about where things aren't going so well and, and, you know, what we can kind of expect, especially as we take a look at the wheat crop. Well, the wheat crop, the wheat conditions came out today at 28% good to excellent. And the last two weeks have been particularly difficult on wheat, uh, down uh, over a dollar. And last week was one of the worst weeks we've had since the invasion. But and that's largely because of rain in the southern plains, and then the forecast for more. And, but the rain that did fall there, uh, the crop conditions only went up from 26 to 28 percent. And when you're going from a record low, that sounds like a decent jump. But when you're going from a record low of 26 percent, good to excellent, with a huge majority of the crop in poor to very poor. Uh, this may not be looked at quite as bearishly as everybody was thinking about the rain because you look at the majority or just how major the drought has been and so many of the hard wheat acres in particular have been in a two-year cycle where uh, you know a quarter to an inch of rain is great to start some future preparation it's not going to save something that uh, was in trouble all winter probably had some winter kill on top of it. So uh, wheat crop's going to be interesting and in how that market responds because wheat's been in a complete free fall and, and uh, has dragged corn down with it over the last two weeks of trade. So we'll see how that happens. But it, and this is really has more to do with what's going on in the U.S. with the rains and, and possible more supply, because there's really, although you can read some uh, headlines and some minor articles every day about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and the Black Sea Export Corridor, the market is trading like that is just a minor side story that they don't need to worry about until something goes terribly wrong. Because I think what everybody has found, and this is certainly positive for world food supply and the logistics of it, was the war did not present the major hurdle of getting wheat out to all of the food deficit nations in Africa and around the world that it originally anticipated. So while the wheat bulls and everyone that wants higher prices are frustrated that it doesn't seem to be factored in to anything, if you look at it from a humanitarian perspective, the uh, logistics community saw a problem. They overcame that problem. And for the most part, the wheat trade is going along fairly normal over the last six months, which is hard to believe. So now we'll just see what Russia does on the May 18th uh, extension for the Black Sea Export Corridor. Uh, certainly, the momentum now is that they will not extend it. Another interesting hitch in this is that Turkey, who's largely been trying to broker the deal between Ukraine and Russia as they sit at the mouth of the Black Sea right there at Istanbul, they have a presidential election. And the current president, Erdogan, is very pro-Russia, but his opponent is uh, not anti-Russian, but certainly not as pro-Russian. 
and uh, it's really being called about a 50-50 race. So it's going to be interesting to see if Turkey takes a different position if the opposition party gets elected and how that will affect uh, just negotiations inside the UN and NATO and as we move forward, because everyone is expansion, expecting pretty uh, sharp escalation as the temperatures warm uh, in Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, we continue to hear more and more noise uh, about, uh, you know, that uh, Black Sea Treaty Agreement. Uh, we're a couple weeks away for, you know, that, that line in the sand changing again, you know. Uh, and uh, I heard a report this morning, you know, South Africa moving grain, uh, wheat, I believe. It, well, no, corn, excuse me, corn to Egypt, you know, and that, that really hadn't happened. Uh, so, you know, those that's Ukrainian corn that used to go to Egypt, and, and, and they're not getting it now. So lots of craziness going on uh, globally in terms of international grain trade. Certainly we're seeing some impact of the drought uh, in Argentina, as well as some of the challenges uh, that, that Brazil's faced with. How, and, and Jody, how is, how is some of those challenges going to impact growers here in the U.S. as we take a look at the environment in South America right now? Well, we'll start with Brazil because they are past 90% done with their bean harvest and their enormous bean crop has really been the outside world cash pressure setting the cash market for about the last two to three weeks because of their oversupply. Just like uh, Russia with their huge wheat crop flooded the market world market with cheap wheat, Brazil had no choice but to flood the world market with cheap beans because they really don't have the logistical setup and infrastructure to store it and move uh, all those extra bushels. So that last 25% really becomes a, you know, sell at any call just to get it out of Brazil. And that's where we've been. We did see, and beans were up today, a nice bounce after some lower early trade on the news that uh, Brazilian cash prices and interior basis firmed over the weekend. So just like in the U.S., when we see a normal harvest pressure and we always talk about a seasonal harvest low sometime September, October. I think we saw that in Brazil over the course of the last week. And hopefully everything will be able to find a foothold to begin to rally back. Because certainly the last two weeks of April were uh, as bad on the markets as we can remember. The other thing, as you move further south, we go from abundance to deficit. And Argentina's harvest is also approaching the wrap-up stage and all of their uh, all of their data is pointing that their crop is significantly smaller than even what the USDA is saying and we'll get another USDA update next week and in that they will start to incorporate some of Brazil's CONAB numbers and some of the Rosario grain exchange numbers to begin to get a better, you know, local view inside the WASD and USDA numbers. And if that were to happen, uh, you can really look at the numbers. Uh, there could be a four or five million metric ton, which is basically 140 to 170 million bushels of corn and beans each that could be shifted to the lower side. So if we're looking for bullish factors, uh, 
we would want to see next week that the USDA uh, more openly embraces what the local uh, governments of Argentina and Brazil are already stating. Well, in, in, in recent reports saying that uh, China backed out of a couple shiploads of corn, certainly, you know, raising some questions about some of the stability in that country and really around the globe. China has become the best market manipulator that there is in the world. Uh, the world marketplace, let them get away with it. They book corn. Uh, knowing full well that if a cheaper offer comes up later where they can still get it delivered, they will uh, you know, be able to cancel one without penalty to buy the cheaper. And in this case, they bought the abundance of the early Brazilian crop that was coming to market at a lower cost than what they had purchased that corn from the U.S. They buy U.S. corn over the course of the late winter as a hedge against uh, uh, the logistics or a possibly a short crop coming out of Brazil or Argentina. And this year they used that hedge perfectly. They were able to cancel it and, and then at the uh, at the expense of driving the market lower, buy it. I'm sure that they are in the middle of buying back those bushels from Brazil and Argentina that they canceled from the U.S. So that's very frustrating to every farmer I've ever spoken to because it's so obvious and so blatant and so widely accepted that we know it's coming in a year when there's any extra production around the world. It's just a matter of trying to plan, you know, uh, plan for that market dip and those announcements. So, uh, you know, just one of one of the uh, frustrating, complex parts of trying to uh, predict, uh, you know, the markets that we're dealing with in you know, 2023. Yes, definitely a lot of predictions, a lot of variabilities taking place right now. Uh, the the Fed announced recently uh, that they're considering one another another raise in the interest rates. How, Jody, how will that impact, I guess, energy? How will that impact really everything that we touch, that extra uh, uh, pop, I guess, to the interest rates? That's going to be interesting because there's a lot of conjecture, and, and we're talking about the next Fed meeting being this Wednesday, uh, the 3rd, that they're going to make a decision on potentially raising rates another quarter of a point. But what the economic numbers that have come out over the last month and what a lot of analysts are looking at simply because uh, there have been some serious bank problems. One of them was uh, foreclosed and basically uh, bought and chopped up into that JP Morgan over the weekend that the it appears the Fed is going to raise another quarter of a point on Wednesday and then pause until the numbers uh, give them a clear direction of whether to begin to cut rates, which uh, the yield curve kind of indicates. Most people think it'll be late fall, uh, you know, late summer, uh, early fall before they can start cutting rates or if everything heats back up and the Fed needs to come in and raise rates again. So what's happening is while the dollar has been in a uh, a bear trend since they began raising about halfway you know, since they started raising rates. It's in a downtrend now, but we still need the U.S. dollar to start falling pretty sharply to get us back in a competitive position just from a currency exchange 
uh, valuation with what we're trying to sell to make up for what we're behind with China. All right, Jody. Uh, any last-minute pointers for growers as they get uh, get to rolling here? The last uh, 75% or so of planting a bulk of the crop across the U.S.? No, the only, th- the only thing is, and this has been as frustrating as everything else, is uh, crude oil. It rallied on the initial OPEC cut to $85. Looked like it was going to find some stability. We're right back at even a lower price before the cuts were announced. So uh, I have been, uh, I'll readily admit that I've, my timing has been terrible about when to hedge diesel because it's, uh, it's, you know, 30 or 40 cents a gallon below where I thought a possible bottom was forming, but at some point, $75 crude is going to look cheap to the world. It's just a matter of whether it's next week, next month, or next year. And uh, OPEC already showed that they don't like $75 crude and indicate there'd be cuts. And if they come through and follow through and even increase those cuts, then we can expect more volatility. But right now, with lower corn, prices, lower bean prices, and lower crude prices, the biofuel uh, refiners, uh, crushers, ethanol plants, and biodiesel, they have excellent margins. And we saw that in the April crush number that just came out, that the margins were fantastic and uh, the crush plants are running at a high capacity to take advantage of their margins. Excellent. Great advice right now. Jody, as uh, we're right in the thick of things of planting this crop for 2023, Jody, I want to thank you coming to us from Nashville today. Thanks for joining us here on FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the FieldLink podcast. Be sure to follow us at Helen Agra on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn in order to get the latest information from Helena. And don't forget to recommend the FieldLink podcast to your friends, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts.